what I would encourage any, any manager to, to do is to pay attention to where their focus is, uh, because I think this defines a lot about what they're, you know, who they are as a, as a manager and, and what they say is probably, you know, you know, sometimes people try to act as a manager by, you know, having some speeches or some big, you know, moments with their team, but where they put their focus is probably a better proxy of who they are as managers. Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of Fellow.app. Today's guest is Rémi Guillot. He's the chief product officer at Blah Blah Car, the famous French online marketplace for carpooling. Rémi is also the author of a biweekly newsletter called Mindfooled, where he writes about leadership, design, and how the mind works. In today's episode, Rémi and I chat about what it means to be intellectually honest, how disassociating from ideas can help you and your team make better decisions. We also discuss KISS and why that method could actually be wrong and why it's our responsibility as managers to digest complex problems before just delegating them out to our team. Last but not least, I really enjoyed Remy's take on how to help someone on your team when you don't have the answers to their questions. If you find this episode helpful, send me a shout out on Twitter. My handle is at Aiden. You can tag us on any social media platform with hashtag supermanagers. And of course, if you want to join our exclusive community of supermanagers, hang out and talk about management and leadership content, send us a note to supermanagers at fellow.app and we will let you know the next steps. Now, without further ado, here's Remy Cuillot on episode 87 of the Supermanagers podcast. Remy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for uh, having me today. Yeah, very excited to uh, to do this with you. Uh, you are uh, located in Paris today, right? That's correct. I'm I'm living in uh, in Paris, and it's uh, like the night time for me right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for doing this uh, at nighttime your time. Um, there's a lot that we uh, we're looking forward to chatting with you about. You've been at a bunch of different companies, uh, you know, uh, including PayPal, and now you're the chief product officer at Blah Blah Car. Before we dive in, I wanted to start out by asking you, do you remember when you first started managing or leading a team? And what were some of the early mistakes that you tended to make back then? So I do, I do. And actually, before managing a team, I started to manage just one person. And, and it was a, an intern um, who was, which I think was the, 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 the key starting point of my career, who was already better than me at what he was doing. So he was a visual designer. And even though he was an intern, he was already instantly more talented than I would ever be, which I think was very interesting because it, it forced me 
to to discover how I could help him become better without myself being better at what he was. So it was really a matter of, okay, so, you know, is there any, any framing I can do about, you know, what he's supposed to do that would actually help him grow faster than what he would do on his own? Um, so I think that was the, the, that was my first managerial experience for two years, just managing one intern in a very, very tiny company. So I have to say that that, like, that's super interesting to me because, um, I think people realize that like way later on and typically it doesn't work that way. Right. Usually you're, you're like the best at what you do. So you, you get promoted and you get to do, you know, basically manage a team or other people, but a, like, I'm super impressed at like just the level of, um, I guess, uh, self-awareness to be able to say that this guy is actually like from, from this particular perspective is, uh, is actually more advanced than I am. So I'm curious, like, how did you coach him to get better at what he was doing? Uh, it's funny because I, I don't really know how I had an intuition today. It's a big part of how I work and how I manage, you know, uh, other people, but I, I had the intuition that, um, he was a very creative mind, which is why he needed the opposite of, of, of what we could expect from creative people. He needed constraints. So for example, there's a very, you know, I had a very vivid memory of uh, him being stuck. We, we needed to create a, uh, uh, it was a small logo for a small product we were building at the time. And he was stuck and he was like, I, I cannot find, you know, I cannot find it. And he was very young. So he didn't have all the, all the tools that he probably developed since then. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to give you a constraint. So not only you have to find logo, but you have to find it um, in one hour, in the upcoming hour. And actually in this upcoming hour, you don't need to find one, you need to find 10. And he did found 10, uh, you know, logo ideas within the hour. And, and most of them were crap, but one of them was interesting. And actually that unlocked, you know, the, the, the kind of block blocking moment he was into. And so I, I think that's, that's something that I think was interesting. Like I, I didn't have the ability to tell him, Hey, this is the direction you should dive into because I didn't have his talent. I didn't have the visual eye, but it, it, it felt like I had the ability to kind of get him unstuck. And what was weird or it's weird that it worked is that by, by putting him in, into a set of constraints, that would force him actually to overcome uh, the the kind of you know writer's block or designer's block that he was into. So that was that was a small epiphany for me to discover that I was able to help him despite not having his talent, not knowing what was the solution, uh, and and by you know creating a frame around his work. Yeah, that that's uh, super interesting, and I, I, I'm very impressed that you were able to figure that out on like your very first uh, stab at management. The, the one thing I want to say about this is I think my, my lucky moment as a manager was discovering very, very, very early on in my career how I would never be an amazing individual contributor. And I think this prompted two things. A, I didn't have the syndrome of, you know, uh, being promoted to a manager because I was the best performer. Uh, it was not the case. And uh, it's because I had a, a strong interest in people, not because I was a great performer as an individual. But second, my admiration for amazing individual contributors has always been very high since I discovered that I would never be that person. And so I think in a way, uh, 
whenever I see an individual contributor that is amazing, who wants to become a manager, I'm always very curious about what's going to happen. Some people actually manage to make this transformation, but I do think it's a, it's a hard one. Um, and sometimes we make fun of, of, of people that you know, become managers uh, and, and because you know, they're not good at doing things. But sometimes being amazing at doing things can actually be a, 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 a hurdle. So that's why it's an interesting, you know, uh, um, yeah, I think I discovered very early on. I, I would never be an amazing individual contributor myself. And that's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, it's, uh, I mean, shows a lot of, um, uh, I guess, self-awareness on your part. And uh, I think, like, a lot of people may not have discovered that, like, many, many years into their career. So, uh, good on you for being for doing that so early on. Um, what about some mistakes? So far, like I have this picture of superstar manager figured this stuff out early on. Let's talk about some of the things that you may not have gotten right from from the get go. Yeah, that, uh, how long how long do you have? Uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> so I mean, what, what, I think one of the early mistakes that I did was to um, to just copy managers that I had. And and even even to copy great managers that I you know I had the luck to work with, and they just copy paste things they were doing, and then discovering that even though it made total sense why they were doing it, it didn't make sense for me. And and this this as an example, you know, um, I remember uh, the, the way I was I don't know one of my manager was actually uh, uh, announcing. Uh, um, that someone was getting promoted, you know, so he would make it a very formal conversation and almost, you know, theatrical. And the first time I had to announce someone that they were getting promoted, I, I, I tried to, to uh, you know, embody the same tone and, and it felt awkward for me, for the other person, it felt ridiculous. And, and I realized that it worked for, for that manager that I had it trying to, to copy and it didn't work for me. And so I think that was an interesting mistake, which is, um, uh, there are some best practices uh, in terms of uh, people management, but it doesn't mean that every best practice works for you. And and so there is a you know there is a sense of you have to to make them your own, and some of them will not work for you. So uh, a lot of the mistakes that I did were copying great people, but without understanding that some of the things just didn't fit me. Um, so yeah, a lot of those uh, happen along the way. You know that's a. You know, that's a very, very good, um, I guess, de depiction of it. I guess my question is the, it's really hard um, to know necessarily like what style will work from you. I mean, maybe for some things you can know, maybe you had a manager who was maybe a jerk and you, 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 you know, you know that you shouldn't be, but um, in general, sometimes it, it's hard, but you're okay with like the concept of trying different things, but just being perceptive of like how it feels and if it feels like the right way for you. I agree. I, 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 the lesson that I took from, from those mistakes was not, it was a mistake to try to copy great people. I, I continue to believe that actually this is a, uh, you know, an accelerator to your growth. You don't have to invent everything on your own. So it's, it's more indeed to, to be attentive to how it feels while you're doing things. And there are things that make sense for someone else that don't make sense for you. They don't feel right, and 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 not to persist, you know, on that path. That's the feeling. So so it, we definitely, uh, you know, do observe, do try to 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 copy source of inspiration because there's there's it's very likely that some things won't work for you, 
but but at the same time there, there needs to be a filtering process when you're trying things yeah one of the one of the things that's uh, interesting about your your background is obviously you come from the uh, design and product background and one of the things that um, I suppose uh, you have a lot of visibility to is the way that teams make decisions uh, that lead to quality design and quality product. I, I'm curious, like, what have you learned over the course of time uh, in helping your teams produce high quality uh, products and work? There is an important ingredient that I would call being intellectually honest. Uh, what I mean by this is I think that it's it's very hard to distinguish uh, who you are and 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 what you think and what you perceive. And, and I think it's, it's very important for a team to be able to discuss ideas without uh, this idea being associated to someone or without, you know, your opinion about an idea um, uh, you know, uh, be very attached to yourself. And so being intellectually honest is the ability to, uh, for example, defend an idea and, and being sincerely trying to defend it and being able, you know, the second after to, you know, sincerely attack it. Because in a way, you're just trying to look at this idea from different angles. And, and if, you're, if you want to take the best decision, you, you better make sure that actually all the different perspectives on that decision have been looked into. And, and being intellectually honest, it means that if someone is going to attack your idea, you're not going to take it personally. You're going to consider what the person is saying. You're going to be able actually to you know piggyback on that person's critique and actually you know say actually that's a very interesting point because we didn't discuss this. So you know, is anyone else in the room actually you know uh, you know thinking that you know we should dig into this? So this I think is a is is a key ingredient which is very hard, um, and the let's say the underlying ingredient is trust, because actually the reason why some people may you know react a bit defensively is because the level of trust that's in the room in the team. Is is it m- makes it hard to distinguish? Actually, you know, am I being attacked, or is it just the idea that I gave that is being attacked? And so, when you have a, a circle of trust uh, discussing, this distinction is very clear, and the conversation can be focused on what we're talking about, not about the person who's carrying the the, the piece of the debate. So that I can definitely see, um, you know, following that kind of protocol will lead to better discussions and, and, and like you said, to, to being intellectually honest. Um, my question is, is this, um, like, how do you teach people to operate in this way? Like when they get onboarded into your organization, um, is there like a specific protocols or you kind of explain to people, this is how we give feedback during these reviews or like when you get feedback, here's like step one, two, three on, on how to digest that and uh, incorporate it. Like, how do you make sure that like teams exhibit these, uh, these behaviors? I'm just by listening to your question, realizing that I think we don't do a great you know, job at onboarding people about this. Um, so I do think it, it's a bit too implicit, but I think the, the way we, we look at it is um, in, in the hiring process, we, this is actually something that we evaluate in, in a very simple way, which is, you know, if we ask someone to present, we ask them to work on a small case study and then to present it, um, we rarely believe that the quality of the work that is presented is going to be amazing because of the amount of information they had, because of the amount of time they had to prepare. What we're going to evaluate is 
how they're going to respond to questions we ask or to strong counterpoints that we make based on, on what they came up with. And, and their reaction is going to be for us, Adler Lacar, a, a, a good indicator of, of how naturally they behave. And, and so that, that's, a, that's a major thing. Um, another thing I think, you know, a lot of people in the in, in, in the company try to to do is is like do you start by asking a question or do you start by making a comment when being exposed to something that you don't fully understand uh, or you don't agree with? Uh, so so you know if you tell me something that I spontaneously would disagree with in my head, am I gonna say, hey, this is wrong because of this and this, or I'm gonna ask, hey, it feels like you know you have some piece of information that I I was not aware of. Can you elaborate on that point? And 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 that in terms, it, it feels. I mean, both could be in a way expressing some kind of, you know, we're not on the same page type of of, uh, of impression. But one seems to be more curious about, you know, getting to the bottom of 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 of, of you know what's what, what's being discussed versus me trying to oppose to you. And hey, you know, we're we're starting a kind of an intellectual fight. Um, so so I think even the the behavior that people display is a way of kind of you know establishing this uh, informal culture. Yeah, I th- I think this is such a key point like for people to take away, which is like before expressing a comment, you should probably ask a question. Uh, I know I've I've learned this lesson a lot, and it's been you know say I I've been at a design review, and uh, I've said something like I think we should do this. Um, but, you know, and, and then often uh, I hear, well, actually we did consider that and, you know, and, and here's why we didn't do that. And so since I've learned <laughs> whenever I'm very good about it to, to ask, so instead of like making the comment to say something like, um, what other options did we consider before <laughs> we arrived at this result? And, and a lot of times like that's, that's a, you know, more respectful question and also, um, it, it will give you more insight than it, if you uh, approach it the the other way. So, yes. 100% agree with with this notion. There, there was a we, we moved away uh, uh, since then, but there was a time where the rule of our design critique sessions was the only type of comment you can make are questions. That's it. There's no we don't we don't care about what you think. Your your only purpose in the room is to help the designer who has the courage to actually present his half-baked work. So you're not here to put a judgment. You're here to have that person trying to cover the blind spots. And one way to cover the blind spots is say, hey, you know, did you consider this, uh, you know, this way? Or is there something uh, about this particular approach that you took that is making you down? So asking questions forces you, I think, to just take a totally different stance on on, uh, on the conversation that you're having. Yeah, and I think that this stuff applies to everything, right? It's not just design reviews. I mean, it just applies to feedback in general of any type to any type of person. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I think it goes beyond design, absolutely. One thing that uh, you and I were just chatting about, like, b- before we hit record, uh, was this, uh, I mean, I think you used the words... Uh, you, you actually used the word obsession about uh, simplicity. And uh, one can imagine like simplicity and design making sense. But I think like for you, it's, it's a lot broader than just design. And it's almost like a management philosophy. So I'm curious if you could maybe elaborate uh, on the concept of simplicity. Yeah, sure. And, and, and I would say it's a, it's a life philosophy. Um, so there's a, there's a book called uh, Essentialism uh, by uh, an author called Greg... McCune, if I'm not 
uh, mispronouncing his name. And I and for me, this is one of the best book about simplicity because um, I don't think the, 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 the word simplicity is used in the book, but for me, it's a definition of simplicity, which is in any situation, for me, someone who's obsessed about simplicity is trying to understand what is the essence of what we're talking about, what we're looking at, right? So simplicity over time I discovered is not about minimalism in the sense of trying to get to zero, you know, to, 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 to lower things. It, it's about trying to understand, you know, what really matters and what, what's the signal and what's the noise. And so in terms of design, um, uh, an obsession, a quest for simplicity is try, when you're looking at a screen, for example, as a, as a, in a design critique, for example, it's like, but what really belongs in the screen? What is at the heart of the screen? And actually, what are things that got there uh, for probably good reasons, but actually, you know, they should be treated in a much more softer or maybe somewhere else where they belong. So it's really, and, and that's, that's, that's for the design part. But um, if you apply it to, I don't know, you're having a one-to-one with a direct report, what, what are you actually trying to, to do right now, today? This person and yourself, what should be at the heart of your conversation? And you can have a one-to-one, which is gonna be a checklist of an agenda that you maybe co-design together, and that's fine. But think about it for a second. Like if you know, if if that's the most important one one-to-one you're gonna have, what should you be talking about? And and the thing is, asking yourself the question sometimes is gonna lead to nowhere, and sometimes it's gonna realize that you had a ten agenda items. And you were not even talking about the 11th one, which was the main conversation you should be having. So forcing yourself to, you know, to, under, to, to, to wonder, but, you know, what is the essence of this moment, of this product, of this conversation, of this relationship, I think leads to an interesting question. Now, I developed over time different type of frameworks to both ask these questions and try to answer it. Um, but, yeah, that, that's my definition of simplicity is trying to, to go to the essence. I, I think this is awesome. You know, obviously, like the uh, there's the eighty twenty rule, and so a lot of times, like there's a small a handful of things that like are going to make the the most impact. I am super curious about the uh, the frameworks you develop, though. Like, how do you how do you remind yourself uh, to do uh, these things uh, across your workday and across your relationships? So my my theory is that um, so this this very typical um, um, uh, motto in the tech industry, which is uh, keep it simple, right? You know, um, so actually it's a, the acronym is KISS. It's the keep it simple, stupid, so, or stupid, simple. I mean, there's di- different variants, but I think this, this motto is totally flawed. It makes the assumption that things start simple, which is just not true. I think things, I think the world is complex. I think any situation is complex. Your job is to make it simpler. So you don't keep things simple. You make them simple. And, and, it, and it's a hard fight. So that, that's, that's how I look at the world, basically. That's, that's my starting point. You know, I never look at, oh, things are simple. Let's not touch them or let's protect them. It's more, okay, things are complex. My responsibility as a person and even more as a manager is to make them simpler, to digest part of this complexity and to hand over um, to my team, for example, a simpler problem to solve. Um, and by the way, right now, I'm, uh, I'm just uh, quoting um, a book, another book. Um, 
that is called a good strategy, bad strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that says that, you know, the, the, the purpose of any strategy is to do exactly this, is to turn the complexity of a working environment or a competitive environment into a set of problems that teams can actually solve. They cannot solve everything about the environment, so you have to digest, make some choices, and the strategy is going to kind of align everyone around those. And so, so when I look at the world as a, you know, an infinite number of complexities, then uh, you need uh, tools that are going to help you simplify. Um, and so I developed a, a, a framework uh, that is called HART. Uh, and um, it, it contains five techniques to simplify anything. The, the framework is, so you have a, a few different strategies in order to turn something that is complex into something that's simpler. Um, my question is, like, how do you remember to do that? Because, like, I think just the essence of what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, the problem is a lot of times, like, you know, when I think about myself, oftentimes after the fact, I realized that, oh, like, you know, the one thing we didn't get time to was, say, the most important thing. Or if I were to ask, you know, questions like, what's the most important thing in marketing right now? Or what's the most important thing in sales? Or what's the most important thing in, in the company? Like, I feel like the process of asking those questions will probably lead to very good outcomes. But it's, uh, but, but often you just get stuck in the, the whirlwind even a thing where like you're in a meeting or you're observing a group of people working together, uh, there's kind of like this, you know, taking a step back and understanding like what's what's actually happening here, or like what's the most important thing in this dynamic. Um, have you figured out like how to get yourself to like ask those questions more often? Not fully. Um, but, but there's a couple of techniques, uh, I think that can help. I mean, for, so I think it's a matter of thinking more and, and I think there's two ways you can think, I mean, thinking more and thinking better. And there's two ways you can do this. Um, I, I think it's silence and writing. So the silence can, 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 can mean, for example, you're in a meeting, if you spend the entire meeting talking, you will not be able to be the person that is actually taking a step back from the conversation and actually observing the conversation and wondering whether the conversation is going in an interesting direction, for example. You know, are we talking about the essential topic or are we just, you know, talking about the distraction that someone threw in there? If you're, you know, too engaged in the conversation, you, yeah, you cannot you know, actually take this perspective, take this step back. So the, you know, if you're less trying to um, prove to people that you're you know, an important stakeholder at that meeting and so you have to have a point of view on every single thing that is being discussed, um, I think it's hard uh, to, to, to do this. So, so that's you know, being comfortable with not saying a word uh, is a good way to have this. I'll just share you know, one, one example. Uh, uh, one of my first uh, meeting at, at BlaBlaCar, uh, the, the two co-founders, uh, you know, gather a small team to work on an important new uh, product idea that you know we had to 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 launch. And so, one of the founder, uh, a very talkative one, uh, you know, sets the 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 the, the challenge and and try to explain why it matters for the company, etc. And he asked every person in the room, so there was you know, some designers, some engineers, some, some product experts, you know, what's the perspective, what are their, their first thoughts? 
The second co-founder is silent. He's not saying a word. Um, so, you know, we, we listen to everyone talking. Um, so the engineers say, okay, so I think that, you know, from an architecture standpoint, we could do it this way. The designer said, okay, you know, I think I can come up with a couple of, of, of mock-ups to imagine how the flow would look like. The product is saying, okay, from a legal standpoint, I want to check with someone else to understand if, if this is something we can do. Everyone talks <laughs> except the silent co-founder. So the other co-founder looks at, to him and say, hey, you know, do you have anything to add? And he thinks for a second and he says, no. And, and the co-founder says, I mean, come on, this is a super important you know, topic. You have a lot of experience, you know, anything you want to share. And he's like, I don't have anything smarter to share than what has been said. The self-confidence that you need in order to, you know, be in the room and just say, I don't have anything to add that is smarter than what is being said is a, is a huge, huge skill. Because when you're able to do this, A, when you actually start talking, people listen to you way more. And B, it turns out that you're able to actually fully listen to the conversation, fully, you know, spot if there's anything missing. So that, that's one way I think you can do it. And then the, the second thing that I mentioned was writing. Um, I do think that um, writing a lot, uh, taking notes, um, it, it, I mean, this is something that you know, the, the one object I always carry with me is not my phone, it's a notebook, um, a, a small one, so it's always you know, in my pocket. And I do think that you know, writing and you know, reviewing what you wrote, but not, in a, um, not because you're trying to send a, a, a you know, <clears throat> meeting notes after just because you're trying to digest what what has been said uh, that allows you to you know get the perspective that you may need that maybe you didn't have on the spot so maybe sometimes you're not during the conversation able to actually uh, you know have the distance that you need in order to say hey are we having the right conversation but at least you're able to spot it afterwards that you know maybe there's something we, we missed and so you, you can come back to it afterwards Hey there, just a quick note before we move on to the next part. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing one-on-one meetings. But here's the thing. We all know that one-on-one meetings are the most powerful, but at the same time, the most misunderstood concept and practice in management. That's why we've spent over a year compiling the best information, the best expert advice into this beautifully designed 90 plus page ebook. Now don't worry, it's not single spaced font, you know, lots of text. There's a lot of pictures. It's nice, easily consumable information. We spent so much time building it. And the great news is that it's completely free. So head on over to fellow.app slash blog to download the definitive guide on one-on-ones. It's there for you. We hope you enjoy it and let us know what you think. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. Are you the type of person that also journals from time to time? So I I don't journal in the way at least I picture uh, journals where, oh, today, you know, listen what I did, but, but I do spend a lot of time alone with my notebook. Like this is how <clears throat> I start my day. Like I drop my kids to school and then I sit in a cafe and I have nothing with me, but this, this notebook, the way I, I try to pay attention to what has my attention. So I try to think, Hey, what's bothering me right now? 
and uh, and I try to write it down. And they okay, but why why is it bothering me actually so much? And I try to write it down. And they you know you know what could I do about it? And I write it down. So it's it's I I would I would struggle to call this journaling. It feels for me a bit of a kind of a, a aided uh, problem solving. Uh, so you know instead of just relying on my brain, which is limited in in many ways, uh, I just try to have this you know um, tool that allows me to put a thought down and then to look from a distance at that thought and kind of being able to, you know, uh, add to it or to criticize it or to discard it. And so this is why I think writing is a, is an amazing tool if you use it as a way to deepen your, your level of thinking. So is it, is, is it journaling? I don't, I don't know, but I do write a lot for myself with no other purpose than just, uh, you know, uh, going deeper into my line of thought. In particular, I wanted to zoom in on what you said, which is the sometimes writing things will allow you to look back on conversations. And oftentimes a lot of the good ideas or like the new ways of looking at things will come after and maybe not during. And so, yeah, anything that can aid with that um, will be a big deal. And I think it's it's also true that a lot of us like are very eager to start talking and discussing um, as opposed to being silent. And on that note of talking a lot, um, there is a, a mistake that you have seen um, a lot of people do and uh, a lot of younger managers do, uh, which is this concept of like managers adding value by bringing solutions to problems uh, whenever they, they see that. Um, I'm curious, like, what is the, what is the approach that you recommend that that managers do take when someone does come to them with a problem? First, I think it, this is the, the I think the right behavior is way easier when you're sincerely ignorant about the solution. Like, you don't even have any idea of solution, let alone the right solution, right? So, so that's. Um, if you want to practice, I think it's easier to practice in a situation where you really don't have the answer. Um, and so try to help out people that are not within your own domain of expertise. Um, so, and you can through, you can do this through, you know, mentoring people or just, you know, reaching out to, to, to people that maybe are younger than you. So you have some experience to bring to them or let's say some credibility, but the truth is it is very unlikely that you have the answer to their problems. And so, well, I think, you know, th that's, that's the question. Yeah. So, so how can you help someone even though you don't have the answer and you don't have any expertise that could be useful to them? For me, it's very obvious that what you're bringing to any person in that situation is precisely to not be the person that is facing the problem, which means you have the ability to um, question the person's approach you have the ability to um, ping pong with that person. So, hey, you just said this, uh, you know, uh, can you elaborate a bit more? Hmm, it's funny, you said this, but actually five minutes ago, you said something that seems a little contradictory. Can you explain why? Um, it can be about, but you know, you're saying that, you know, you really care about this particular thing, but it feels like everything we're talking about is something else, you know, which one is it? So I think what you, are, what you can do is trying to have a, a mix of full, the person needs to, to know that you care, like you really want to, you know, you're, you're on her side. And at the same time, being very skeptical of whatever the person is saying. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard balance to find. Um, 
but but kind of you know I I, I really want to help you out, but I I'm going to deconstruct what you're telling me without adding any particular knowledge, just rephrasing what you're saying and 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 sharing it with you and see if it helps you see it in a different light, and and I think that's um, that's a, that's a good it's a bit generic, but I think it you you know. Uh, it, it's, it needs, by definition, to be a generic approach because you're not bringing domain expertise. Um, so it's like full attention. You're you're fully listening, and you're trying to spot what seems to be the flawed part of the reasoning, and then to you know rephrase it as a question, as we said before, so that hey, maybe you you know if there is something to dig into. Yeah, I th- you know I think this is uh, so interesting. I mean, I, I love the you said uh, specifically like you have to show that you you care while at the same time being skeptical. And, and and I agree that might be a hard balance, but I but I totally understand it's it's like the place in between those two things. And it's very interesting what you said, which was the uh, sure you might have a solution in mind, or sure you might be say co- context aware. But I think like the the super valuable thing, like you said, is you have the outsider's perspective, which is why like a lot of times, even, you know, for ourselves, I find it's hard for me to solve my own problems because you're just like too in it and you're just not seeing something super obvious. And oftentimes like one right question uh, will get, you know, you, you to be able to actually come, come to the solution. So the outsider perspective is super valuable, I find. I think the outsider perspective also allows or actually forces the person to explain the problem they're going through, which sometime alone is going to be the path to the solution. So, you know, you think you understand the problem that is in your head, but then you need to explain it to someone who's not you. And by explaining it, you're like, oh, but wait, actually, I'm, I, you know, just by explaining, I realized that I, you know, my, my, my reasoning doesn't make any sense, but I just discovered it by explaining to someone that needed more context. So, but, but, but you cannot do this on your own. Uh, so that's why, you know, the act of writing kind of, you know, uh, does this, but if you don't have this habit of writing or if it's not enough, having someone who's really listening to you is forcing you to explain your own problems in probably a better way than you were doing to yourself. And that, that can be, be helpful too. So even just this, but you have to, to, the person needs to see that you're really listening and you really want to understand because if it's, you know, you're just a, a passive listener that is actually, you know, thinking about, okay, you know, what do I need to, to make in terms of groceries tonight? Then, then uh, it will not you know create this effect. Yeah. I think, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. The other topic that um, I also wanted to ask you about was just on hiring um, so you, you have something called an expectation map. Uh, would love for you to explain, like, what, what is an expectation map? When you start a new job, there is, whether you, you know, know it or not, there is a, a, a set of expectation that people that have decided to hire you have for you. So they expect, I mean, you, there's, a, there's a problem, there's a hole somewhere, and they expect you, <coughs> sorry, to... Um, to, to kind of, you know, fix this thing um, uh, or to, you know, f- fill this hole. The thing is, uh, this set of expectation is unlikely to be clear. And, and not that anyone is trying to hide it from you, but it's, it's, it's likely that it's going to be uh, phrased in, in either implicit ways 
or in contradictory ways. So actually, your the set of expectation might be coming from different people. So the job description you're going to get is going to be very generic, um, and it's going to be the probably the same that they would have for any person into a similar type of role than the one you're diving into. Even though you're hired for a specific role at a you know specific time, um, and so the expectation. And I call it the map because you know this is something that you have to map out. You have to put extra effort into uh, making this fuzzy set of expectation into a document. Like this is exactly what people are expecting me to do. And this is not something that I invented. Like there's a a, a book called The First Ninety Days which basically is for me is a Bible in terms of how, you know, you should onboard yourself in your new job. And, and this, this book is, is, is helping you to ask the right question that will, you know, help you fill in this expectations map. So for example, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it's clarifying what are the conversations that you should have with your manager after you've been hired. Of course, you're going to have all of those conversations trying to see if you're a good fit. But after you're hired, there's a set of expectations that you need to really clarify about, you know, but where, where do we think the company stands right now? And, you know, what is expected of me in the upcoming 90 days? And what is the status of the team that I'm joining in terms of mood or efficiency or a couple of conversations that um, you're going to usually think you're having uh, but in a, in a very casual way, and, and the expectation map is trying to, you know, uh, to make you do this in a much more formal way. For example, another best practice from the book is saying, the first time, the first time you meet every single person in the company, you should ask them exactly the same type of question. Because, for example, imagine I ask, uh, you know, ten people in the company, uh, can you explain to me what is the company strategy? Imagine I get 10 different answers. That's a very different information than if I get 10 times the same answer. And both can happen, and, and there's nothing dramatic about either situation, but you want to understand what company you're stepping into. And for example, if you have 10 different answers, well, you know for sure that you don't have a company that is aligned around at least what they call a strategy. Maybe they're aligned on something else and that's okay, but you need to understand this. Maybe they're not aligned, that's maybe okay, but you also need to understand this. But um, all those things are things that usually you discover, you know, too late. Um, and, and an expectations map is, is just a document trying to you know, formalize very explicitly what just what people expect from you. Not you know in in theoretical terms, but in very concrete terms. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's awesome you mentioned the the first ninety days. We we had the author uh, Michael Watkins uh, on the podcast. Uh, I love his approach. He's he's very contrarian. He's one of like the most contrarian people uh, I've ever spoken to. Um, so yeah, for the audience, if you want to check out that episode as well. On the expectations map, I did want to ask you, so do you actually take this and like give it to people on their start date? No, no, I do. I think a, I think this is something that um, you as a new employee need to discover. The thing is, if I was, if I, as a manager, I was to give that to the person, the truth is I would actually only give, um, 
I would actually give my expectations, but I, my expectations are only actually a short amount of information compared to what the person needs to be aware of. So for example, imagine, um, I don't know, imagine the other direct reports hate me as a manager, right? As a new employee, your manager is never going to tell you that by definition, uh, because he's not aware or it's not a type of information he would share. So there's, there's so many things that, that you know, you, you as a new employee in your position, you need to do a 360 uh, degree, you know, uh, investigation about what you're stepping into to really understand what's the situation. So I don't think it's something that can be given to you. I think it's something that you have to, you know, have a type of framework. First thing days is for me the, the best framework that I found to, to go through this investigation and, and ask question, make observations. Uh, another tool from the book is a, you know, a, a set of questions, a weekly check-in. Like at the end of every week, you ask yourself questions like, uh, you know, what bothered me this week? What opportunity did I miss? You just ask yourself questions that are just forcing you to really reflect on what's happening. And the reason why I was talking about the expectations map is, is in particular to make an opposition um, because the, the question that I was being asked when I was thinking about this was, hey, I'm uh, being hired as a new head of design. What do what am I supposed to do as a head of design? And I was my my thinking was this is the this is the flawed way of answering the, the question. Like who cares what a typical head of design is supposed to do? The key question is what are you supposed to do in this particular role? Um, maybe a, a head of design is supposed to come up with great ideas in theory, but maybe in your case, this is not what you're expected on and you're going to fail if you try to produce great ideas that actually no one cares about. So the expectations map is trying to move away from, oh, this is, oh, I'm a, I'm a chief product officer. So this is, I'm in charge of the roadmap. Maybe, maybe not. It depends on, on your particular context. So that's what I, for me, the, 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 the expectation map needs to come from the ground up not being thrown down by either what other people do in other companies or what your manager wrote as a job description. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And uh, I, I think that's a great way to put it. We have talked about uh, a bunch of different topics now. Like we talked about being intellectually honest, uh, you know, concept of essentialism and also simplicity, um, using silence and writing as, as a toolkit. Uh, being caring, but being skeptical, uh, so many different concepts. And uh, I know we're getting close to time. Um, one thing that, one question that we, we like to, to end with is uh, for all the managers and leaders out there constantly looking to get better at their craft, um, what tips, tricks, or parting words of wisdom uh, would you like to leave them with? And I, and I will say that, like, and I, I would love to, for you to tell us about this as well, is I know you have a newsletter uh, on, on Substack. Um, I'd love for you to also, like, tell people how they can get to it and uh, what kind of things you write about. So the, so the newsletter is called Mindfooled, F-O-O-L-E-D, mindfooled.substack.com. Um, and, and what is the reason why I chose this name is because it's about um, what I try to write about is how our mind fools us. Uh, and so it, it's just, you know, my own observation about, you know, what you can, the better you understand how your brain works, the better you can actually, you know, make use of it basically, but it, not in a, in a very scientific way, more in a, uh, you know, a very down to earth way. And so 
I, I do talk a lot about uh, uh, many topics that we 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 covered today. I, I'll end on on one last book. As you can guess, you know, I I I learn through reading. Um, there's a, a book um, from um, maybe 15 years ago called Wrapped. And, and there's a quote that never left me since then. The, the book starts with this quote and it basically says, um, your life is the sum of what you focus on. So your focus is actually, you know, what you pay attention to is actually the, the, the one thing that, you know, defines everything else. Um, and, and there's two ways to interpret, you know, this thing. Uh, the first one is um, if you focus on something, it ultimately ultimately is going to you know become a bigger part of your life. Just because if you focus on I don't know, becoming a good manager, then manager responsibilities will become a bigger part of your life. So just just because if you focus on something, is going to it's going to grow. And the second part of the interpretation of this sentence is if you decide to pay attention to something or not, even though in reality it still exists, if you decide to ignore it. It will not become part of your reality, or if you decide to focus on great events, they're going to actually, you know, your life is going to be a very happy life. And so, what I would encourage any any manager to to do is to pay attention to where their focus is, uh, because I think this defines a lot about what they're, you know, who they are as a as a manager, and and what they say is probably, you know, you know. Sometimes people try to act as a manager by, you know, having some speeches or some big, you know, moments with their team. But where they put their focus is probably a better proxy of who they are as managers. That that's something I would uh, pay attention to as a manager. What, where do you where do you spend your focus? Um, and and are you in line with that? Are you happy with that? That's great advice and a great place to end it. Remy, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, fantastic conversation and thanks a lot for the preparation behind it. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Super Managers Podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.